Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. I am about to tell a story. You are not going to believe it, but it's true, okay? When I was a, when I was a teenager, I played, a basket, on a basket, I played basketball, I played on a basketball team. Uh, you're going to really like this, okay? If you'd ever need an assistant coach, you've got one, Ainsley, okay? Uh, I played on a basketball team, and I played what was known then as a point forward. I want you to think of LeBron James without the talent, without the skill, and without the size, okay? I played point forward. Uh, I know you all find it hard to believe, but I was the only guy on our team that could dribble the ball. So... Uh, my, my coach said, I want you to dribble, the, bring the ball down. I want you to be the playmaker for the offense. You know, get the offense going and set it up. And, but I was a tenacious rebounder. I know I was only five foot seven, but I played like I was six one. That's what the coach told me, not my words. I was tenacious rebounder and defender. And I just, you know, I just was very aggressive down there. So I said, okay, so on offense, I'd bring the ball down. And then on defense, I'd go down the low, in, in the box, in the low post, and I would play defense, and rebound. That's what I do. Well, one particular game, I was having a really good offensive night. I was lighting up the scoreboard. I think I was like scored 30-something points that night. But there's this other guy on this opposing team. Every time he came down the court, he scored. I mean, this was going on and on. I got to think, am I playing this guy by myself? What's going on here? And so, you know, I kept saying, somebody get on, on that guy. He's killing us. And this went on for the whole game. Finally, I realized that, oh, I'm supposed to be defending him down on the low block. <laughs> I realized it was my man that I was supposed to be covering. See, what I was, I was into the offense and being the playmaker up front, but I forgot when I go back on defense, I got to station myself down on the low block and guard that guy. We lost the game because of a point forward that did not do his job. The fact of the matter is, when you have any type of team, it takes everybody doing their job. It takes everybody performing the role that they are supposed to have. In the same way, God can use a team as well. God uses a team of people to deliver people from their sin and deliver people from the strongholds and the strangleholds of their lives. And in Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to see how God puts together a team with everyone playing their respective positions to deliver the people of Israel out from the oppression that they had been in. This was an oppression that they were under for 20 years. Now, before we get into that passage, I want you to know something, that God has also assembled another team. That team is called the church. Yes, the church universal, but see, I'm kind of one of these guys, I'm kind of big on the local church, because I think sometimes I say I'm a part of a universal church that meets nowhere, does nothing, and is responsible to nobody. I believe in the local church. So when I say God has put together a team, I'm saying God has put together a team of believers that meets right here at 6301 Bosque Boulevard. And according to Scripture, this team is invincible. This church is invincible. We learned in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we looked at it about four weeks ago, we learned that God's team, God's army, is supposed to be an attacking army 
breaking down the gates of hell. That's what he said. And he says, this army is invincible. And we're all a part of that army. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a player on this team. You have a role to play. And hear me on this, you are not a bench warmer. You're not just there to warm the bench. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that God has put this team together. He calls it the body of Christ, and everyone within that body has a role to perform, has a part to perform. You can't all be eyes. You can't all be ears. You can't all be noses. You can't all be big toes. But somebody's a big toe. Somebody's an eye. Somebody's an ear. Somebody's a nose. You all have a part to play. So in Judges chapter 4, God puts together a team of individuals that are going to operate according to their giftedness to deliver the people of Israel. So let me set the scene for you. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, after Ahud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here they are in that vicious cycle that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the cycle they get into. And so God sold them into the hands of Jabin and Sisera, who became the ruler. Jabin was the ruler. Sisera was his military mercenary, is who he was. He sold them into that, and they began to oppress them. And for 20 years, they were under suppression. And it says in verse 3, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now remember, this is not a cry for repentance. It's a cry for relief. Relieve us from this oppression that we are in. So in order to deliver the people, in order to set them free from their oppressor, deliver them from their sins, God assembles a team. And the first person that he puts on this team is an individual by the name of Deborah. Look at what it says about Deborah in verses 4 and 5. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah is a judge, and she's the only one of the judges, the only one of the delivers that actually acted as a judge. She arbitrated cases. People would come to her at the tree named after her. They would come and they would receive mediation or arbitration in a case, and she would make decisions for them. But the scripture is clear. Not only was she a judge, she was a prophetess. A prophetess is one who spoke for God to the people. Spoke for God to the people. And we know the Lord raised her up for a time such as this. He spoke to her and he gave her specific instructions. He gave her a plan. He gave her a vision. Any good team has a plan. Any good team has a strategy. I believe in plans. I believe you need to have plans. Let's look at how God, uh, let's look at how this plan that God gave came to fruition. The first thing you're going to see is that Deborah delivered the plan. Look at verses 6 and 7. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now remember, she's a prophetess. She's received a word from God. Now she's communicating that word. A prophetess is one who speaks the word of the Lord. 
That's who a prophet or a prophetess is. Now, did you know the church still has prophets today and who get a timely word from God for the edification and for the admonition of the church? Now, here's the caveat. It will never contradict God's written word. They will never give a plan, never give a vision that's violation or contradiction to what God has already revealed. It will never be contrary to what God has already spoken. Now, the Bible calls this a, a gift. It calls it a spiritual gift, this gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives the gift of prophecy. And then in verse 28, he says, not everyone is a prophet. So let me refresh your memory. God gives a gift to certain individuals, the gift of prophecy, but not everybody has that gift. It's limited to certain individuals. So who is it that says that God doesn't speak today? Who is it that says God does not speak today? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, he said, do not put out the Spirit's fire. King James, you know this, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't put it out. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the power. Don't quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. The very next thing that Paul says, he says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Isn't that interesting? So here's what Paul is saying. Look, don't quench the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is revealed in the prophecies that somebody's given, and don't treat them with contempt. He said the two go hand in hand because God has given that gift. So God still speaks today through human instruments to communicate a timely word to individuals, but also to a body of believers. I still believe that. I may call me old-fashioned, call me biblically based, whatever. You know, I still believe that God gives specific visions and plans to people, and then they are to communicate that. I believe that's the pastor. I believe that comes to the pastor as, as he does that. Uh, yeah, but here's the thing about the pastor. It's not the pastor's job to attempt to carry out the plan by himself. He is simply the vessel that God has chosen, that God has used through human instruments to communicate his plan. God uses him to communicate or to deliver the plan. Here's how it works. The pastor studies Scripture. He prays. He seeks counsel from others, from other pastors, other scholars. He does that. He, he, he looks at data. He keeps abreast of, of trends and, and, and statistics going around. And then he allows God to formulate in his mind an appropriate plan for the church. And he does it. And then he communicates that to the church. This is what I believe God is telling us to do. This is what I believe God is wanting us as individuals to do. And he delivers the plan that God gave him. Now, we do make a mistake. I know you find it hard to believe. Sometimes pastors make mistakes when they try to carbon copy what somebody else has done. Let me tell you something. What works in New York City does not work in Waco, Texas. You know, what works in Seattle, Washington will not work in Waco, Texas. So we, we, we mess up and we kind of duplicate plans. Let me see if I can flesh this out. When Gabby and I served as missionaries in Guatemala, 
the IMB, the International Mission Board, was going through a shift of ideology, a shift of what it was. They'd had a lot of missionaries on the field before, but what the IMB had discovered is that they'd seen a decline in conversions. In other words, we send missionaries, I don't know if y'all know this, we send missionaries on the field to win people to Jesus. That's what we send them on the field for, okay? And so they were seeing there was a decline in people coming to Christ. But what they were also discovering is that in China and Vietnam, they were seeing a rapid growth of Christians coming to Christ, a rapid growth of the church. And so the IMB came up with a new strategy. Not that the old strategy was bad. It said, we need a new paradigm. We need a new strategy. And this strategy was based on what was successful in China and Vietnam. And it was called a church planting movement. A church planting movement. And so they said, we need to embrace that in Africa. We need to embrace that in Latin America. The problem is, what worked in China, what worked in Vietnam, did not work in Latin America. The main reason being is that we were not under communist dictatorship. Uh, we could actually preach in the street. We could actually tell people about Jesus without fear of persecution. And because we were coming out of a, a, out of a Catholic culture, it was okay to have a building. Because in Latin America, for the Latin American people for 500 years, you go to church to receive the grace of God. That's where you go. So if we come in and say, you don't need a building, say, where am I going to get the grace of God? So we were battling culture in that situation. And we determined that what worked in Vietnam and China did not work in Latin America. And we formulated a different plan. You see, sometimes we hear what's working somewhere and we try to adapt it and it doesn't work in this particular culture. The point I'm trying to make is God will give a unique plan to every church for every situation. God gives that plan. Peter says in his epistle, he said there's two major gifts that people have, speaking and serving. Speaking and serving. On speaking, this is what he said. This is not me. This is what Peter said. If anyone speaks, he should do it as if speaking the very words of God. So when that person who's given the spirit of prophecy by the Holy Spirit he does that. He better make sure that he's speaking the very words of God. So we don't try to duplicate what others are doing. We don't try to, try to, to fit into something that is not for us. But God uses human instruments to speak boldly the word of God through preaching. Not everyone's called to preach. Not everyone. Not everyone's called to serve as pastor. That is delegated to a handful of people. And I tell people all the time, I would tell Aaron this as well, I would tell anybody seeking to go into ministry, this is what I tell them, if you can do anything, if you can do anything and serve God and be happy, do it. Don't get into preaching. Don't get into pastor because this is not for the faint of heart. Anything. And, and, be, and be happy. But if God has called you in to do this, then you cannot do anything but do what God has called you to do. You can't do it. And so we try to communicate that. Not everyone, hear me on this, not everyone is called to communicate the vision. Not everyone, but some are. Some are. So Deborah delivered the vision. Deborah delivered the plan to the people. What was the plan? Basically, he said, Barak, I want you to gather 10,000 people from two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, and I want you to go down to the uh, go down to the Kidron Valley, and I want you to attack off Mount Tabor, and I want you to attack 
Sisera with his 900 chariots and all the men that he has. That's the plan. And he said that God will deliver them into your hands. Now, that's the message that Deborah delivered. Anything else would have been disobedience. She had to deliver the exact message that God gave her, and if she did not, she was in disobedience to God. So she delivered the message. She gave the plan. And that's what happened. Now, she's played her part. She's delivered the plan. Why does this next person come into play? Let's look at it. Barak believed the plan. Let's look at how he responded in this passage. Look at verse 8 and 9. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. I know what you're thinking. I said, I thought you said he believed the plan. If he believed the plan, why did he want her to go with him? Uh, why did he do that? So you're saying, well, maybe he was a, a scaredy cat. Maybe he was afraid. I don't think that's what it was. I think he wanted her presence. I think he just wanted her with him to, 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 to help him in that situation. Perhaps, you know, Barack was one of these guys, man, look, I'm a fighter. I am not a preacher. I'm a fighter. I'm not a prophet. He said, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but, but I, need, I need you there to be with me. So I don't think it's because he's scared. I don't think it's because he lacked faith. Because his name is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and the roll call of the faithful. Deborah's name is not mentioned. Barak's name is mentioned. So I don't think it had anything to do with his lack of faith. I think probably what's going on is he wanted Deborah to be with him just to demonstrate to the people that he was indeed following the plan that Deborah had communicated. I think that's what it was. I, I kind of look at it as that one of the things that I try to do with young, young people that ask me for any advice about ministry and what they need to be doing. I, I really have a very simple statement to said, you got to do whatever it takes. But in my house, we have a phrase that we use. It's called, you got to be willing to clean the toilets. You got to be willing to clean the toilets. Now, here's what I mean. Not literally clean the toilets, unless you literally have to clean toilets, okay? But what I mean is that you have to be able to do whatever it takes to make sure the work is done. Yeah, you got to do it. So one of the things I've always tried to communicate and one of the things I've always tried to demonstrate as a pastor to, to others is that when a work day is there, I'm there. When a mission trip is there, I'm there. When there's some ministry taking place, I'm there. I'll be there at Operation Christmas Child. I'll be there at the Bosky Bash. I will be there because I'm trying to communicate to the body that I believe in this plan. I believe in it, and I'm here to work with you, work alongside you to make sure this plan is there. So I think that Barack is trying to say, hey, Deborah, I want you there. One of the things I communicated to Jeremy, y'all remember Jeremy? Y'all, everybody remember Jeremy? Jeremy and Abby used to sing up here, okay? Uh, uh, they moved off to Anchorage, and one of the things I told Jeremy before I left, I mean, I'm, I'm really full of wisdom, folks. I said, Jeremy, you got to be willing to clean the toilets. He understands because he's hung around me long enough. But then just to make sure he remembered it, I bought him a pair of socks that has little piles of poop and plungers all the way around it. Why did I do that? Because every time he puts that on, he's going to remember, I got to clean the toilets. I got to clean the toilets. And so now he's up there leading worship. He's 
teaching the youth. He's doing, a, doing the older kids in Awana. Abby's doing the younger kids in Awana, or the older kids in Awana. You know, they're doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes. You've got to be willing to clean the toilets. I think Barack wanted Deborah by his side to inspire the people. I think he wanted her by his side to inspire the people that, that he believed the plan, and I'm, she's here to show you that she's by my side. And it might inspire them to act on the plan. And we know he believed. The scripture says he believed. Look at what it says in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this, go. This is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. He believed. And his belief led him to act on that. Barak believed that God would accomplish his purposes through him. It's one thing to say you have faith that God can do something. It's another altogether to act on that faith. And could it be that Deborah's the one that knew the timing? She knew when all this was going to happen. Barak might have said, hey, look, I know what's going to happen, but I don't know when it's going to happen. So I'd kind of like you to be with me to kind of communicate that to me. You see, it's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to utilize the plan in God's timing. And that's what we see going on. We need people on the team. Listen to me. We need people on the team that believe that God can do the miraculous. We need people on the, on the team that say, say, I believe, I believe that God can do immeasurably more than I think and I can imagine. And I believe that God can do the impossible. And because I believe that God can do the impossible, I'm going to do what's possible for me. And I'm going to trust God to do the rest. That's exactly what Barak was doing in that situation. Let's look at how the battle plays out. Look at verse 15 and 16. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Hagarith, uh, Hashereth Hagim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Now here's what's going on. You don't pick this up in this passage, but you do in chapter uh, 15 or chapter 5. What's going on? During the time of the battle, it was the dry season. So everything was dry, and Sisera knew that his chariots would be able to advance in that valley, and they would not get bogged down for the mud. So he knew this was the time to attack them and bring them totally into submission. But he didn't know that God was going to be the, use the very thing he counted on against him. And so what God did, God called a rain to descend in the dry season. God calls a torrential rain to, to, to descend. It flooded the river, and then the river floated out of its banks, and it caused all the chariots to get stuck in the mud. And the chariots were rendered useless. And here comes the army. They come down from the mountain into the valley, and they kill everybody there. Everybody. And God won a great victory there. Now look at what the text says, verse 15. It says, the Lord routed Sisera. Now obviously, Barak had to use a sword. Obviously, the, those 10,000 soldiers had to be involved in the battle. But make no mistake about it. After they had done everything that they had done, God brought about the victory for them. That's the evidence of faith. That's when you really see faith stepping out. 
We step out on faith. We use the weapons. We use the skills. We use the tools. We use the abilities. We use the gifts. We use the talents that God has put at our disposal. But guess what? God does the routing. God does, gives us the victory. But he lets us have a part in it. We call that cooperating with God and what God wants to do in the world today. And God even controls the elements. He even controls the elements uh, at, his, at His disposal. And listen, He can even change circumstances in a heartbeat to accomplish what He's calling us to do. And I keep praying every day, God, change the circumstances. Change the circumstances of people so that things will look different and they will get on board. The odds seem to be against Barak. It didn't look like there was any way that he could win the victory. But he had faith that God would empower him and grant him the victory. So he put his faith at work. He said, okay, God, I believe you. So I'm going to do what I can and I'll trust you. But the story's not over. Sisera escapes gets away. Everybody else is killed, but Sisera gets away. So there's an ultimate victory that still has to be won. Because if Sisera's not captured, if Sisera's not killed, then he'll just go back and get more men and they will subject them even longer. So Deborah has, has delivered the plan. Barak has believed the plan. But off the bench comes one more player. Her name is J.L. Let's look at her, the role she plays. J.L. finished the plan. So instead of telling you what happens, let's just read the story, verses 17 through 21. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because they were friendly, they, they were, there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. He did not know what hit him. No. One moment he was asleep, the next moment, well, he doesn't remember the next moment. You know, <laughs> it, it happened that quick. What's going on here is this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Deborah spoke to Barak. Because you're acting the way you are, Barak, the victory won't be yours. It will be that of a woman, of a woman. You see, in those days, women had the responsibility of putting tents up. They were what we call a tent wife. While the soldiers go off the war, when the soldiers are out hunting, whatever it is, it'd be the women would be left behind to build the tents, to put the tents up. So her job was to build the tent. You know what she knew how to use? A hammer and a tent peg. She knew how to use a hammer and a tent peg. Now, you might look at this story and say, it's a little bit dishonest on J.L.'s part to invite him into her tent. You know, she's using trickery here. But remember, the Bible's clear. They were on friendly terms. You know, her tribe or her clan, they were on friendly terms. And besides that, this is the leader of the army of their oppressor. She probably ought to be a little bit more hospitable to him. So she says, yeah, come on in. Come on in. Uh, we'll let you in there. 
you know, so uh, she knows that, that she better redeem the opportunity that God is putting before. Remember in the previous chapter, we talked about Ahud. And Ahud redeemed the purposes that God had for him, and he killed Eglon, the king of Moab, to deliver the people. So here's the scenario is the same thing, except whereas Ahud went to Eglon, here Sisera comes to Jael. It's the same situation going. Now you're probably, I'm thinking about Jael. She probably did not wake up that morning and said, man, I can't wait to use my tent peg and hammer. Uh, she probably was not thinking, ooh, today's, I'm going to set my people free. Woo! This is the day. I'm going to get to use my hammer, and I'm going to get to use my tent peg. I don't think she ever planned that. She, she never did. She's just going about her duties. She's a tent wife, housewife. And she was just doing her daily duties. Listen, every day you yield yourself to God, allowing yourself to be used and redeeming all the opportunities that God gives you. Every day. Just say, God, today, I want to be used by you to redeem the opportunities that you've given to me. Let me ask you a question. What's in your hand? What's in your hand that God can use for His purposes? What skill, what talent, what ability, what gift do you have that God can use for His glory and for His honor? What do you have in your hand that you can use for the glory of God and to advance His purposes? J.L. was a housewife. She was a tent wife. She knew how to operate a hammer. She knew how to use a tent peg. Do you think she ever imagined that day that God would use her in such a way? I doubt it. I doubt it. But she allowed God to use her in that moment. I was speaking this past Wednesday night. I have permission to tell this story, okay? So I was speaking this past Wednesday night to Robbie and Jill Durbin at the, the Wednesday night uh, 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 meal. And as we was talking, Jill talked about an opportunity that she had with an individual who, we won't get into all that, but an individual who called and said, hey, I'm special needs. You know, yeah, I, I need somebody that will cut my hair. You know, she's a hairdresser. You open up her own shop. So I'm sure she's looking for clients, okay? Should I have said that? No. <laughs> she's looking for clients, okay? But she opened up her own shop, and, and she stepped out on faith that God would do that. And in the process of us talking, I said, you know, Jill, it's that God has given you an amazing opportunity to use your gift in a way that glorifies Him. I said, here's how. I don't know a lot about, about women getting their hair cut, but I know they like the same woman to cut their hair. You know. Oh my gosh, my beautician is retired of 35 years. Who's going to cut my hair? You know, am I correct, ladies? Amen. Am I right? Uh, you know, guys, we just show up. I'll just cut it. It'll look good. It'll fine. You know, so I, I know. So people are going to come to her and they're going to plan, they're going to schedule an appointment every two weeks, every month. They want that same person cutting their hair. I said, Do you realize, Jill, that you could have a long term relationship with these people and God can use you to share the gospel? play the Christian music and open up dialogue. You can communicate because beauticians are, are kind of like it used to be the old bar. You go to the bartender, everybody knows your name. The beautician is on your Christmas list, okay? Uh, they get a card from you, you know. That's how special it is. I said, God can use that for His glory and for His honor. We don't know 
what God can do when we yield ourselves to Him. And the beautiful thing about being available to be used is that you come to expect God to do things through you continually. John Ortberg said it this way, once you see God in an ordinary moment at an ordinary place, you never know where He'll show up next. Do, do you see how this team was successful? Do you see how this team that God put together was, was successful? Deborah delivered the plan, Barack believed the plan, and J.L. finished the plan. But God used all three of them in a unique way to accomplish His plan. What was it? Set His people free. To deliver His people from their oppressor. To deliver them from, from their stranglehold and the stronghold that was on their life. Paul said it this way. We are the body of Christ working together to achieve the purpose of the head. We are the body of Christ working together to achieve the purpose of the head. Some people communicate the plan. Some people communicate the vision. Others believe it and say, I'm on board. I'm going to go out and do what I can. And then it takes others coming alongside to help finish up that plan. So what do we got to do? We got to quit whining about what we don't have. And we, and we got to start, we, we, we got to start using what we do have. Maybe you're not, maybe you're, you, you can't sing. Maybe, maybe you, you can't, uh, uh, you can't preach. Maybe you can't dance. Can we say that? Maybe you can't dance. Uh, uh, we can't, uh, okay. Maybe you don't have controlled movement. All right. Uh, uh, you know, maybe there's thing, maybe you can't speak in public. Maybe you can't teach a class. But you know what you can do? You can shake a hand. You can greet somebody when they come in the door. You can take up the offering. You can have a smile. You can have a, have a hug. I always ask the young ladies when they come in, or even the old ladies too, I say, you don't mind if we hug, do you? Because I'm kind of a hugger. It's okay. It's okay. There's a part for everyone to play. Maybe it's taking up the offering. Maybe it's giving an offering. So I don't have much to give. Well, but you can give a little bit. Maybe you are wealthy. Man, bless you if you are wealthy. Bless you. You need to be given to the church. Why? So that what you have can be utilized for the kingdom of God. Everybody has a part to play. From the smallest to the greatest. But what we get into, we get into the problem thinking, well, the preacher has the plan, the preacher needs to believe it, the preacher needs to execute it. And nothing ever gets done. This is old school church. This is what we did in the 60s. This is what we did in the 70s. This is what we did in the 80s. Well, preacher, that's what we pay you for. No, it's not. You pay me to equip you to go out and do the work. That's a novel idea, isn't it? That comes right out of Scripture, by the way. Ephesians chapter 4, look it up. He said he gave some. He gave some pastors and teachers, apostles. Nothing goes on. He says what? To equip the church for the work of the ministry. But if we let one man do it, or even a small group of people do it, guess what? You never get to experience the joy of serving God. You never get to experience the joy of being a part of a team. You never get to do that. Instead, we have a bunch of point forwards running around doing their job and forgetting the rest of the job. It doesn't work that way. Listen, hear me. God wants you on the team. 
He wants you using your talents, using your abilities, using your skills, using your, your gifts, uh, using whatever it is that you have, and he wants you on a part of the team. And here's the, here's the thing. It is the greatest team that's ever been assembled, the body of Christ. It's better than the Dallas Cowboys. It's better than, I hate to say Alabama, but everybody thinks they're the best. It's better than the Baylor Bears, especially yesterday. It's better than the Baylor Bears. It's the greatest team that's ever been assembled, the church. The church. Stop and think about it. It's through the church and the sharing of the gospel that God will change the world. It's the only institution that God has said, I will change the world through my church. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then, then will I hear from heaven and I will hear their prayers and heal their land. If my people, my people. God has put together a team of believers called the church to carry out his plan to deliver people from their sins and deliver people from the strongholds and the strangleholds that have held them captive. The only thing left, my friends, is get involved. It's time to get involved with what we're doing. For some of you, that means being a part of a church. That means being a part of a local body of believers. I am pretty, I'm pretty old-fashioned, okay? I believe that, if, that if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not a part of a local body of believers, you're already in rebellion. Already. Because the Bible says in Hebrews, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. How can you be a part of a body if you're not working with that body? How can you do it? You're already in disobedience. Say, well, but pastor, I'm a part of the universal church. I said, okay, where do you meet? Where do you get disciplined? Where do you get discipled? What do you do? Nothing. Nothing. God believes in the local body. And he's put us here at 6301 Bosque Boulevard. Why? To impact our community. To be a lighthouse for Christ around here. Around here. A mile, three miles, five miles, wherever it is. We're to be a lighthouse. We ought to be the body of Christ in this neighborhood. So for some of you, means I get you gotta get be a, be a part of church. You gotta be a part of church so you can you can serve, you can get involved. For others of you, you can't even be in the church if you don't know Jesus Christ first and foremost as your Lord and Savior. If you've never come to a point in your life where you said, "I need to make Jesus Lord of my life," then we can tell you how to do that. We got men, we got women here that can sit down with you, show you the scripture, and show you very clearly what it means. Basically, this is it. You gotta admit that you're a sinner. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you don't admit that you're a sinner, you have no reason to accept Jesus as Savior. You've got to admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of God's plan for your life, that you can't do it. Second, you've got to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, every one of them. He died for your sins. He paid the price that you could never pay because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So in other words, you are going to get paid for your sins. Either you are going to pay for your sins or somebody else is going to pay for your sins. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus Christ paid for your sins if you will accept that, if you will believe that. So you've got to admit that you're a sinner. God, I am a sinner. I have failed miserably. I have not measured up. God, I am a sinner. I've missed a mark. 
of your plans for my life. I have rebelled against you. Second, I believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified on a cross by cruel men. But he had done no evil, and he willingly laid down his life so that I might have life. But on the third day, I love this part of the story, but on the third day, Jesus Christ was raised to life. And that's why Paul, the apostle, cries out. He said, therefore, because of what Jesus Christ done, we can say death no longer has a sting over us. The grave no longer has a sting over us because Jesus has swallowed up sin and he swallowed up the grave in his death and his resurrection. So you admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And this is the one that will get you. Okay, stay with me. This is the one that will get you. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Now you've got to put it in action. You've got to commit your life to Christ. Sometimes we as Baptists say confess. Confess. The word confess in, 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 in the Greek means homologeo, which means say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. God says your sin separates you from me. That's what God says about it. But I like the word commit because confess, we always say, well, I did confess. But are you living your life for Jesus today? Because listen, if your salvation works today, it will work tomorrow. It will work tomorrow. So yeah, you, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not of works, lest any one of us boast. But we do do works to verify, to prove that what we say is true. So you've got to admit that you're a sinner. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin. And you've got to commit your life to his lordship and say, I will live for you. You'll say a very simple prayer. Said, Lord Jesus, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. But I know that I've missed the, the plans and the marks you have for my life. I have rebelled against your law. I've rebelled against that. Lord, it, there's nothing in me that's good. So, Father, I come to you today and I lay myself before Jesus Christ because I know that he paid the price for my sins. I know that, that because of his blood, that, that if I will accept what Jesus Christ did, that he paid the price for my sins. And Lord, today I accept Jesus Christ. Today I believe that he's my, my Savior. Now, Lord, I want to commit my life to him as my Lord. And I give you the rest of my life. You know what you say after that? The minute you say that prayer, God takes your sins as far as the east is from the west. And he says, I remember them no more. I remember them no more because the blood of Jesus Christ has wiped the slate clean. And then when you stand before God, Paul says that you stand in Christ. In Christ. So that when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. What does he see? He sees you standing in Christ who paid for your sins. Some of you today, you can't get in on the team until you first say, I got to know the captain. I got to know the head. I got to know Jesus. So some of you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Some of you got to be a part of a church. For others of you, man, just get off the bench. Just get off the bench and start doing something. You don't need my permission. Goodness gracious alive. Just get out and start loving people. Start telling people about Jesus. Let's invite people to church. You could do that, can't you? I don't know. Well, that means I have to talk to somebody. Oh, I've heard you. You all talk. It's not that difficult, okay?